electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford and Deirdre Bosa. Today, breaking down the Salesforce surge, why some are calling it the best barometer of cloud spend right now. Then even hardware feeling some love today, the latest on how HP beat estimates despite this slowdown in the consumer. Later on, inflation's in focus for tech investors worldwide. Don't miss a check on the economy with Fed President Mary Daly in just a few moments, John. Yeah, we've got to start with Salesforce. Beat on the top and bottom lines, boosting the stock today up 12.5%. Uh, Salesforce upping its profit forecast but lowering full-year revenue guidance. Here's co-CEO Mark Benioff on why they're making the adjustment. Our guidance is really impacted by foreign exchange. I think that that is what we could not see, that we have now had to consume about $600 million of foreign exchange changes since our investor day, since we first gave guidance last November. And if you look at that deacceleration of, for example, the yen since March, I mean, I've never seen anything like it. Here to discuss Index Ventures partner Nina Ashajan and Evercore ISI senior managing partner Kirk Matern. Welcome, guys. Nina, what does this mean for the overall software as a service space? Uh, What kind of demand insights did we get? Because in a way, it seemed reminiscent of what Frank Slootman told us on Tech Check last week, that it's not so much a macro issue, it's individual customers that uh, we're seeing some rockiness. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be back. And as an investor in SaaS in the private market, seeing Salesforce's earnings yesterday was a great sign because, as you said, it is a barometer for cloud spending. And I think across the board, we've really hit the reset button on SaaS from a valuation standpoint and also the metrics that matter. But as Salesforce shows us, this is not a doomsday scenario. You know, stock performance only tells you a certain part of the story, but not the whole story. And I think if you take a step back, what you have to look at is, are these, are these companies selling mission-critical software, and who are the end customers they're selling into, and what is the financial health of those end customers? Okay, so Kirk, what are we seeing in enterprise tech spending writ large, not just what's reflected in these earnings, and, and how does that reflect uh, companies who are also in this ecosystem? Echo Nina's comments on spending these days on the enterprise side, it's very durable. Uh, I think it's very difficult for large enterprises just to turn off and on spending as it relates to digital, uh, their digital strategies. And, and we published a report over the weekend talking about you know, IT spending. And, and 93% of the respondents who are at larger organizations are expecting to spend more on IT. It's a continuum of spend. So I think the idea that IT spending as is, is as cyclical today as it was in prior cycles is just wrong. And I think you hear that from companies like Salesforce, from ServiceNow, from Snowflake, that the products that they're delivering to their customers are mission critical in terms of their customers' ability to compete in the digital economy. And so 
you know, I think obviously IT spending is not completely disassociated with the macro. If things get tougher, you'll see some pockets of weakness perhaps. But in general, you know, IT spending is holding up extremely well. You know, I get the optimism, guys. And, you know, even hearing Benioff say that they've been on this world tour to talk to hundreds and hundreds of customers. But do investors want to be a little careful on the read through here? I mean, this is Salesforce. It's kind of a gold standard. They've got so much in free cash flow. Benioff also talked about how they learned some really hard lessons during the 2001.com bubble when it burst. So, like, Nina, we want to be careful about applying what Salesforce showed us to some of the younger, newer SaaS companies. Of course, I think that's a great point. And I think on the private side today, you know, the conversation is very different if you're an early stage company or a growth stage company. Early stage company, you know, valuations haven't changed that much, nor has the strategy, frankly, because the checks that we're writing today, these multiples and how these companies are going to be valued seven to 10 years from now is something we can't predict. But if you're a growth stage company, I do think we have reoriented around, you know, net dollar retention. CAC payback and unit economics. And what's so great about the SaaS model is the agility to go more towards profitability or more towards growth. And I think there's some amazing examples in the public markets of companies doing this really well, like Datadog, for example, yeah. Zoom Info and Atlassian, which have been able to toggle both free cash flow margin, high margins and high growth all at the same time. Yeah, it's great that you gave us some other examples. Nina, Kirk, what about you? Do you think that, or what do investors need to look for in terms of separating a CRM or a Datadog from maybe some other names that don't have that financial discipline, don't have that balance sheet in the SaaS space? Well, I, I think you're starting to see the, those type of names sort of separate themselves. The, the companies that have really strong unit economics underpinning their businesses, as Nina mentioned, strong net retention rates, that show a durability of growth and and cash not only revenue growth but cash flow growth. Obviously, the bigger companies are a little bit more insulated. In tougher times, they can perhaps take wallet share from the smaller companies. But there are a lot of really good small cap growth names that have strong unit economics that are showing profitability and operating leverage. You know that have been sort of tossed by the side to the side. So I, I think it is going to become more of a, a separation between the companies that can show both good growth and operating leverage versus those that are sort of earlier on in the, in the maturation process. And I think it's going to take a while for some of the small cap companies to sort of find footing as a result. So we continue to sort of tack a little bit more to the larger cap names as a result in the near term. But there's some really nice small cap names like Qualtrics, and some others that are, that are growing really nicely at scale, billion-dollar-plus companies that have kind of gotten caught up in, in, the, in the broader sell-off. And, you know, I wonder if you think uh, the degree to which hybrid work, uh, remote work, has been a driver of demand for enterprise software. Uh, not to make too much of Elon, this reported Elon Musk memo where he says re remote work is no longer acceptable. But if the labor cycle turns hard, if leverage returns to the employer, if that demand, at least at the margin, uh, takes a ding here or not. Well, I think we're going to see in IT spend really a consolidation towards software that is absolutely critical to running your business. So things like accounting software, which Intuit and Avalara provide, or, you know, everybody's cutting costs. So spend management software like Coupa, or everybody is competing for the customer end dollar. So anything that makes you provide a better customer experience like ServiceNow, I think are really going to be uh, where IT spend goes. However, on the hiring, it's an interesting point because we've seen all these headlines from Netflix, from Uber, Instacart, PayPal, 
and even Salesforce around how all these companies are proactively going to slow hiring. And I think that's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, this means slower growth because you have less salespeople dialing for dollars and you're spending less marketing dollars on advertising. But on the other hand, when you have a smaller workforce, what do you do? You look to buy technology to automate what a lot of individuals were doing before. So for example, if you had 100 customer support reps last year, and this year you only have 50, well, most likely you're going to look to buy a customer support software that makes your one rep 10x more efficient. Uh, Kirk, finally, just a couple weeks ago, there were people saying, oh, if a company's not profitable, just stay away from it. Don't even hold your nose. Uh, there's no point. But when we have these signals in enterprise demand, if there are companies that have solid products with a moat path to profitability, why not take a gander on some of them uh, here? I think it gets down to your investment time frame. If, if you have a, a, a true three to five year investment horizon, you know, and you see strong unit economics underpinning the business model, meaning net retention rates that are strong, uh, payback that that looks good. You know, you could see companies that are losing money today, but are on a very clear path to break even over the next year or two. That 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 could be worth taking a look at. I mean, what's great about software is every each one of these companies is a little bit different. So there's a little bit of a different story behind each of them. And I think what Nina said earlier is important, which is what are they solving for, right? Are they solving for productivity? Are they solving for helping their customers grow in a tougher economic environment? You know, those companies have very strong opportunities going forward. Yeah, we talked after the last jobs report about the lack of productivity, the impact of labor. You know, software is really going to help most companies get through this period uh, where inflation is high and people are looking to drive productivity. It is the solve. So I think that the underlying demand trends for, for the most part are, remain very, very solid. So uh, you can look at some of the unprofitable ones, but I think you're going to have to have a, a much longer duration of investment. Well, as, as many should, uh, Kirk, Nina, thank you. Thanks. Thank you. And HP is another name that reported, bucking the tech earnings trend this season, reporting a quarterly profit gain thanks to strength in its commercial business. Frank Holland joins us now to break down the numbers. Frank. We are there, Deidre. Uh, HP Inc. outperforming other leading PC makers. Dell and Lenovo today after beat on the top and the bottom line, as well as some strong guidance. The company citing strength when it comes to sales of its personal computers and desktops to corporate customers that are spending to adjust to hybrid work. Sales of peripherals like headsets and keyboards also rising as part of that trend. CEO Enrique Laura is saying inflation is hitting consumers, but companies, they continue to spend during his appearance on Mad Money last night. Our commercial business grew 18% and represents now about 65% of the total PC business, which is a very solid number. All right, well, similar to Salesforce yesterday, Box last week, Laura said the rising dollar is a headwind this quarter, but the primary impact again was to consumer sales. He also said the rising cost of some components is only adding to supply chain issues and sourcing those components. Uh, the difficulties there he expects to last throughout the end of the year. Back over to you. You know, Frank, as I was looking through, I know they're different, very different industries, but Salesforce versus an HP and their capital allocation programs were very different, which I thought was interesting. Salesforce said, listen, we're not really thinking about returning capital quite yet. But HP, right, they're committed to buying back $4 billion in this current fiscal year. They want to be 100 percent return of cash flow, of free cash flow over time. Um, talk about that in the context of hardware, Frank. I mean, 
especially at a time when a lot of companies are trying to preserve cash, that versus returning it to shareholders? Yeah, you know, I mean, for HP, I, you know, I spoke to uh, the CEO, Enrique Loras, before his appearance on Mad Money. He said, really, they feel very strongly about their business going forward. Uh, JP Morgan, excuse me, Citibank, uh, put out a note just a week before saying they expected PC sales to decline by 9% year over year, reducing their previous forecast of it being flat year over year. Enrique Loras told me a very different story. He says he actually sees sales remaining strong throughout the rest of the year. Despite inflation, despite the fact that there's a there's a perception, at least out there on the market, that everybody that wanted to buy a PC or a Chromebook or a desktop already bought it. Frank, it's gonna be thanks for writing that down. Yeah, interesting test of the consumer, Frank. Thanks. Let's turn to the broader market now. Steve Leisman joins us for an exclusive interview. Morning, Steve. Steve's not ready yet. We'll get to him when he is. Uh, we're going to talk more about the macro, though, as we are down, John, about 211. And a lot of that driven by some of the, the numbers we got at the top of the hour of the 10, uh, not just jolts, but construction spending coming a little bit weak. ISM uh, employment first sub 50 read since November of 2020. So all these things are going to feed into individual decisions that investors make about individual names. Yeah, so true, Carl, with the overall markets. But then beneath that, you know, we were just talking about HP. Uh, HP Inc. want to be specific, not talking about HP Enterprise, but not only is that stock up 2% today, better than 5% year to date, it's up 32% over the past 12 months. Yes, HP. Wow. I mean, so, <laughs> so there are some spots to look at within this market where some companies are, are performing in ways, D, that you might not have expected. Of course, we've been talking about Salesforce this morning, yeah. and there are a number of companies, I think, that are up in sympathy. ServiceNow is up about three and a half percent, MongoDB as well. Coupa, which uh, has had a tough tape of late, is up two and a half percent. So perhaps some people taking another gander, as I was saying before, and at H software. HP as well, one of those legacy names that have been doing better in the current market environment, um, maybe has to do with some of that capital allocation as well, the returning it to shareholders. You mentioned this yesterday, John. Amazon has been on it, this incredible run, up nearly 15% just in the last week alone. Carl, it is the top gainer on the NASDAQ 100 today, so quite a bounce back for this mega cap name that was beaten down so much more than the others. All right, indeed, guys. Let's try to get back to our Steve Leesman this morning. Hey, Steve. Good morning, Carl. Yeah, we're joined this morning by San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly, who joins us from the West Coast. Thank you for joining us, President Daly. Thank you so much for having me. Um, let, let's talk about there's been some a lot of different points of view put out about what happens over the, the near term here. Uh, not so much the long term, uh, of which there's also plenty of confusion. But I want to ask you for uh, not so much a weather forecast about the summer and the fall, but more of a monetary policy forecast. We have uh, Fed Governor Chris Waller says 50 basis point rate hikes until inflation's under control. And then Rafael Bostic from Atlanta talks about the idea of a potential pause in September. Where do you stand, President Daly? So here's where I stand. I stand at we need to get the rate up to neutral, which I put at about 2.5 percent in nominal terms. And, and so we need to do that expeditiously. And I see a couple of 50 basis point hikes 
immediately, you know, in the next couple of meetings to get there. And then we need to look around and see what else is going on. We have other things besides the Fed that contribute to either higher inflation or the moderation in inflation. Supply chains and China just opened. That's good news for the global economy, good news for supply chains. We need to monitor the war in Ukraine. We need to monitor what consumers are doing and how much slowing the economy already has in train as we raise the interest rate and get us remove the extraordinary combination we've been providing. But my own goal is we know where we want to be at the end of the year, which is around 2.5 percent in the interest rate. And getting there will be, you know, let's get there as quickly as we can to just take off the accommodation that I don't meet anyone, contacts, consumers, anyone who thinks that the economy needs help from the Fed right now. So a couple 50s uh, in the summertime, it sounds like you could go ahead and do another 50 in September on your way to two and a half for the end of the year. I certainly am comfortable to do what it takes to get inflation trending down to the level we need it to be. I really think these high inflation numbers have been going on too long and consumers and businesses all everyday Americans are depending on us to get inflation back down and, and, and bridling it. And so the reason I'm not forecasting beyond the next couple of meetings is because I don't know what else the data are going to give us. We've seen financial conditions tighten. We've seen some early leading indicators that say that slow, they're slowing in growth numbers, but we aren't really there yet. So we need to continue to see those data on a slowing economy, bringing demand and supply back in balance. And I need to see some real progress on inflation. Otherwise, I would think we just move the rate until we find ourselves at least at neutral, and then we look around and see what else needs to be done. Let's talk about uh, beyond neutral here and whether or not you think the, the Fed has to go there. There was obviously some talk in the last minutes about going beyond neutral. Where do you stand on that? There are some people out there who say, you know, it's not crazy to think about a four or five percent funds rate because it ought to be positive to begin with, a two or three percent inflation rate, and then you may have to get restrictive. How do you come down on that? So I absolutely am open to pulling the reins back on the economy after we've removed the accommodation, but it's too early in my judgment to proclaim that we're going to do one thing or another because we still have other things that are unfolding. I mean, I mentioned China already. China literally just reopened. That we need to, to persist in its opening so that we get supply chains some relief. We also need to see what happens with the war in Ukraine and how much energy and food supplies really can come back in balance with the demand there. And I need to see more progress on getting demand growth back in line with supply that we have. So I'm looking for both supply to recover somewhat and demand to come back down a little bit. If neither of those things cooperate, then we need to go into restrictive territory because ultimately we have a goal of price stability and full employment and we're not at our price stability goal. And Americans depend on us being there, so that's where we'll need to go. It sounds to me, President Daly, as if perhaps you see additional inflation coming down the pike. You mentioned a bunch of things. There's the war in Ukraine. There's the China lockdown, which is just now barely opening up. Uh, and, and one thing you didn't mention is, is wages still seem to be pretty strong. Do, do you think inflation has peaked or is there still further to go to reach that top level? Well, I hope it's peaked, but I do not 
want to declare victory because we we just aren't ready to do that. I feel like we need to continue to watch the data, continue to look at the factors you just named. I mean, China could go either way, right? If it stays open and produces things, it puts relief on supply chains. If we really get to move from pandemic to endemic across the globe, not just in the U.S. or parts of Europe, we really get some traction on supply chains. But I don't know how that's going to play out. And so because I don't know that, I'm looking at the uncertainty and say, be prepared to do what it takes to get inflation back down and really be prepared to stop raising the rate, not be restrictive if inflation comes down on its own with just the removal of our accommodation and cooperation on the other fronts. But it's too early to tell, and that's why I don't proclaim, because it, it also doesn't serve us. How about a wage price spiral? Is that a concern of yours? Do you see any signs of it now? I don't really see signs of a wage price spiral. So here's why. When I talk to my contacts, one of the best ways to find out what firms are thinking about is to talk to them. And so we had a series of inflation roundtables talking to small businesses, medium businesses. I talk to large businesses all the time. And here's what I'm seeing, that they're out there fiercely competing for workers, but they also recognize that at some point, a wage price spiral is something they can't sustain. So they're looking for a variety of ways to sustain things, including changing working conditions, giving work workers other things that they desire, not just compensation, and finding that that flexibility they're offering isn't actually cutting into their bottom line, but it, it gives people other things besides just monetary compensation that they need. I also see uh, some, bright, some green shoots, as my contacts would say, that they don't see, they saw workers getting the wages up, but they don't see consistent asking for higher wages. And they're starting to see the churn go down as people start to settle out and they found jobs they like and they want to stay. So all of those things bear further watching, but right now I don't see a wage price spiral. So, I mean, it sounds like the news is a little bit better right there, where maybe we've reached some kind of peak wage or some kind of wage equilibrium, given the uh, amount of supply and demand for labor. I do see that you, know, so you see some of the early indicators on the labor market still really strong, but there is a little bit of sense that this can't go on forever. We cannot continue to be in sort of this auction environment for firms forever. And workers are starting to see that they can settle in on jobs. So I, I think we can, it's a little bit optimistic or a little bit uh, optimistic, but I don't want to declare victory because again, we have inflation at high numbers and we really have to be humble about the future path and be ready to adjust as needs be. But getting the accommodation out of the economy that we've been putting in seems the obvious first step. So, President Daly, could you put it all together for us? Do you see a recession coming? And, and maybe you could walk us through your outlook for how we uh, avoid a recession in this sense of high inflation right now, the Fed quickly raising rates. D does that create a recession or how can it be avoided? So I don't see a recession. It's not my modal outlook, uh, so to speak. But it definitely is something that people are worried about. And when they ask them, why are you worried about a recession, it has little to do with we're raising rates expeditiously and more to do with concerns that will overreact and will go way above the neutral rate of interest without much data to confirm that we should do that. So I think what the Fed needs to do, and this is how I am thinking about the economy, is get the, remove the accommodation, but then be open to the data, be data dependent. Should the data come in and have more inflation than we would like or expect, we definitely will be corrective. And that could cause growth to slow uh, more than people would like. But right now, we have strong growth. I mean, you see the slowing, but I see restaurants full, 
airport's full. I can't get a flight. If, if you want to change your flight, you're uh -huh. in your tough luck. And so people are coming out and doing things. I don't see a lot of declines in sentiment, but people recognize it's hard to afford things, and yet they're still spending. So we have to wait for all of this to play out. The summer's going to tell us a lot. But right now, I'm pretty optimistic about the U.S. economy. I'm glad the president of a Federal Reserve Bank has trouble changing a ticket, too. That uh, makes me yeah, not, not feel out there. Uh, singled out here. <laughs> a couple quick things here real quickly. You, you're about to uh, launch on quantitative tightening. I guess it starts this week here. Um, what kind of effect does that have? How much is that worth in terms of raising interest rates in the economy? How much volatility should investors expect? So that's the million-dollar question. How much does it give us for the announcements we made? One thing we know about balance sheet policy is announcement is when all of the things reprice. We do continue to watch it because as we actually do the job of, of removing uh, or reducing the balance sheet, we could see more. So I'm watching financial conditions to see that. But, you know, something between 25 basis points to 50 basis points is sort of the modal outlook. There is no consensus on this. People, Some people argue it's much less. Some people argue it's much more. I'm data dependent in this world. And, and so I look to see what's happening and I watch financial conditions. And, you know, one of the most remarkable things on financial conditions, frankly, has been the fact that we took a 25 basis point increase in March. We talked about we talked about what we were to do going forward. And we saw the mortgage interest rate jump from around three to above five. And so the financial markets seem willing and able to digest this. And people are already responding with planning for how they manage their their uh, borrowing and spending, given the the adjustments we plan to make. So I think right now the digestion has gone very well, and we continue to watch it to see if that can, that that is uh, sustainable, mm -hmm. and continues. Very quickly, President Daly, you've been very generous with your time. Are you going to sell mortgage-backed securities this year or sometime soon? So I, you know, this is something that the committee will continue to decide on. And what I really like the idea that we're going to announce what we're doing, communicate it well in advance. And so as we meet and decide on these things, people will know about it before we actually do it. Okay, President Daly, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. My pleasure. And thank you, Steve Leisman. Bye-bye. Back to you guys. Yep. Thank you, Steve Leisman, for bringing that to us. Now, we just talked about high inflation, volatility, also now big techs facing the possibility of more regulation. Don't miss the latest from Washington next. Tech Check is just getting started. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work.
We've seen a whirlwind of headlines on big tech legal limits and regulation this morning with new FTC head Lena Khan stepping up her scrutiny of mega cap names like Amazon, but also some legal victory for big tech. Uh, Julia Borston's wrapping up some of the latest for us. Hey, Julia. Well, John, there's been a temporary victory for the social media platforms. The Supreme Court temporarily blocked a controversial and sweeping Texas law that would prohibit online platforms such as Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube from moderating or removing content based on viewpoint. Now, we didn't get any comment from the tech companies themselves, but the industry groups that are working to block the law argue that, quote, HB 20 would compel platforms to disseminate all sorts of objectionable viewpoints, such as Russia's propaganda, claiming that its invasion of Ukraine is justified, ISIS propaganda, claiming that extremism is warranted, neo-Nazi or KKK screeds denying or supporting the Holocaust, and encouraging children to engage in risky or unhealthy behavior like eating disorders. Justice Alito, who is critical of the court's decision, citing concerns about bias in moderation and writing about, quote, the power of dominant social media corporations to shape public discussion. But here's why this battle is far from over. The Supreme Court just imposed an injunction blocking the law from taking effect while federal courts decide whether it can be enforced. That means that the Supreme Court could and likely will ultimately have to rule on the constitutionality of the law itself in the future. Now, meanwhile, another tech giant who could be facing regulatory challenges is Amazon. The FTC has reportedly revamped its antitrust probe, and that probe is reportedly picking up speed as the commission pushes for details about its $8.5 billion acquisition of MGM Studios in particular. Now, if the FTC challenges the already completed MGM transaction, that could discourage other tech media M&A or even any media M&A as well. John? Yeah, Julia, thanks. And those antitrust approaches for Amazon specifically feel uh, a little bit different this time. Elon Moy has more on the perspective from Capitol Hill. Hey, Elon. Hey, John. Well, the Senate is inching closer to a bipartisan deal on antitrust legislation, so Amazon is ramping up its criticism. In a new statement that's out today, the company warns that the legislation would jeopardize two-day prime shipping and potentially shut down its third-party marketplace. It said, quote, the degradation of the prime experience would materially hurt not just Amazon, which is what we believe the real unstated goal of the legislation to be, but every American consumer and small business that currently relies on the prime service. Now, running afoul of this bill's ban on self-preferencing could cost the company big bucks, as much as 10 percent of annual revenue. Amazon said that would cause it to operate at a loss and, quote, make it difficult to justify the risk of Amazon offering a marketplace in which selling partners can participate. Finally, the tech giant went after the lawmakers themselves. Senator Amy Klobuchar, who's spearheading the legislation, hails from Minnesota. Her counterpart in the House, Representative David Cicilline, is from Rhode Island. And Amazon questioned why competitors like Target and CVS, which are headquartered in those lawmakers' home states, would not be affected by these bills. Now, a source tells me that Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has committed to bringing these bills up for a vote early this summer. But guys, Amazon's open criticism today shows just how hard these companies are working to stop that from happening. Back over to you. 
All right, it's been a while since Reg Rist has been at the top of our list of things to watch, Elon. We're going to watch it closely. Thank you, Elon Moy in Washington. Half past the hour here, time for a news update. Let's get to Christina Partsinevelos. Hi, Christina. Hi, Carl. So here's what's happening at this hour. Delta Airlines is expecting its revenue to return to 2019 levels this quarter. That's thanks to a surge in travel demand and higher fares that have helped it weather a jump in fuel costs. The airline recently trimmed its flight schedule to try to eliminate travel disruptions. Apple is reportedly moving some of its iPad production to Vietnam following COVID lockdowns in China. The tech giant already started shifting some manufacturing to Vietnam following rising U.S.-China trade tensions. Now the company is accelerating that move to further diversify its manufacturing. Job openings fell by nearly half a million in April, narrowing the historically large gap between vacant positions and available workers. However, the gap remains relatively high in this tight labor market as there still remains an almost 5.5 million difference between available jobs and workers. Meanwhile, mortgage demand has fallen to the lowest level since the end of 2018, despite interest rates ticking lower last week. The average rate on the 30-year fixed home loan fell from nearly 5.5% to about 5.3%. Prices still are rising due to a low supply of houses on the market. Carl, back over to you. All right, Christina, thank you. Uh, Newberger Berman's investing head is going to join us with some picks to help us handle the volatility in a moment. We have lost those gains and then some. Dow's down 300. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. We just heard from San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly earlier this hour saying the Fed will do whatever it takes to bring down inflation, including including raising interest rates up to two and a half percent. Our next guest has some tech names off the beaten path to help you ride out any inflationary headwinds. Joining us now, Newberger Berman Chief Investment Officer Hari Ramanan. Hari, it's great to have you with us today. Talk first about your picks in the chip space. Uh, A lot of these names we don't talk about too often. They're a bit of smaller players like monolithic power. Yeah, hi, Deirdre. It's uh, good to be here. So we see the uh, the opportunity for investors today uh, is to take advantage of what we uh, have seen as a general um, um, uh, a healthy move in the tech space where um, companies have been um, uh, companies that were typically overvalued in the uh, software as a service segment sort of come back to come back to earth. In that regard, we think there's lots of companies in the semiconductor space that we think are quite interesting. These are battle tested back in 2018-19, having gone through 
a trade war. They've had to battle cyclicality. They've had to battle shutdowns, shortages. And so we think this is a very interesting area for us to be looking at sort of semiconductors. In fact, we believe that semiconductors will be the staples of the next mm. decade. Uh, in that regard, we like companies like analog devices, monolithic power, and companies that feed into the semiconductor ecosystem like Cadence and Keysight. And Hari, just speaking more broadly as well, um, we've talked to a lot of guests recently amid the market turbulence who say that, you know, maybe you want to hold a little bit more cash on hand, especially if the economy slows down further. You're kind of taking a different tact, though. You say that cash today can seem more urgent, but you could miss out on some thematic investment opportunities. That's right. I think uh, I think our general sort of idea here is if you wait for um, uh, the Robins, spring will be over. And I think there's a general, generally good case to be deploying capital in an environment like we are in today. Now, they may not be in the obvious spaces. Um, we are, in addition to sort of semiconductors and the, the view that semiconductors are becoming the, the staples of the next decade, meaning they're going to be more resilient than they've been in the past, uh, we also like um, this theme that old is gold. We look at companies like John Deere. We look at companies like uh, Disney that I think are quite different, um, differently positioned than they were in the last 10 years. So we think that's an area for us to be uh, interested in deploying capital, as well as uh, this cheeky idea that let's not get too sassy about SaaS now. So there's opportunities even in SaaS, but one needs to be more discerning um, and we need to be able to separate out um, uh, companies that have the ability to demonstrate good quality growth uh, in addition to just growth itself. What, what exactly do you mean about uh, Deer and Disney re related to gold? Is this, a, is this a function of lessening energy intensity overall in the economy over the course of the last few decades? Yeah, good question, Carl. So the, the idea is, is old is gold. So in other words, it just uh, it's hearkening back to companies like uh, John Deere, as well as companies like Disney that have used the last uh, handful of years to fast forward and make themselves sort of more future proofed. So when you look at a company like John Deere, it gets value like a cyclical company today. But the proof of John Deere's execution and market was really not now when corn is at eight bucks, but really at three dollars a bushel. This is a company that generated in Q3 three of 2020, approximately 500 basis points of operating margin improvement during a time when the world shut down. That we believe is a function of the investments they've made in Precision Ag in uh, helping, helping farmers uh, uh, drive more productivity in an environment where um, the, ag and, the ag environment was not so, 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 so strong. So I think going forward in an environment that is actually quite reasonable today, where the industrial economy is doing quite well, John Deere will take a lot more share and they will also be able to monetize their investments to a greater degree than they've done in the past. And so we believe that uh, at 11 times earnings, uh, this company is priced for more cyclicality than, it, than, it, than it's going to have to, uh, than it's going to really have. All right. Uh, talk more, if you will, about Disney, which I, I just think it's so interesting because it was at uh, 190 a share just about not too long ago, but now it's trading around the level it was, it, you know, th this time in 2015, but the company has changed so much. So right. how do you look at media in general in a streaming era from both a library perspective and a technology perspective to decide how to value these companies? 
Yeah, John, that's a good question. Um, you know, we we look at uh, we look at Disney as a phenomenal company with a phenomenal asset, but also a phenomenal set of problems uh, that that uh, that won't be new new to listeners to this show. Uh, what we think, though, uh, is that Disney is getting caught in the wrong argument around streaming. I think Netflix has misguided the market generally in in, in thinking about uh, streaming businesses. Now, Netflix has been a success certainly over the last last sort of fifteen years. But one of the things that's interesting about Disney is that its streaming business does not have the same economic um, uh, does not have the same economic um, uh, uh, debates that that Netflix has. If you look at Netflix and generally how people view streaming today, it's sort of seen as sub-growth drives a whole bunch of um, um, content amortization and therefore whoever can bid most for content wins. Whereas we think Disney has a different set of problems and, and frankly Disney's issue is that their content is really, really good. So the question is we shouldn't be concerned about whether this company is going to go from 140 million subs to 200 or 250, but really whether they can monetize their subs very well. Now the reality is Disney's got uh, a really captive audience, they own all their content, so we think their, their streaming economics are going to be quite different from um, uh, from Netflix. Moreover, you look at Disney Parks and the, the legacy business and the parks business this last quarter had peak profits. This is despite Japan, Paris, and whole parts of even the US not benefiting from international travel. So we think Disney is in, in a good position both on the legacy side as well as in, uh, in the streaming front. That's interesting perspective. It has that flywheel uh, versus, say, Netflix. Hari, um, your motto, old is gold, does that apply to tech as well? Do you favor some of the legacy names like IBM and Oracle in this current environment over some of the growthier momentum ones that may be less profitable? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so we, we, I'll, I'll take a slightly different stance on that. Uh, we like, for example, a company like uh, like Analog Devices. Analog Devices is 56 years old, which makes it a bit of a dinosaur in, mm -hmm. in this world where you're having a whole bunch of SaaS companies that are 5.6 years old. Um, you know, if you look at Analog Devices, listen to v Vincent Roche, the CEO, what you see is 20% of this business is growing at strong double digits. And this is a company that, uh, that has economics that are even better than SaaS. I mean, 50% operating margins, uh, growing, uh, growing high single digits, uh, generating cash. Their 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 acquisitions uh, in the recent past of both Linear and Maxim have been very very well well timed. Uh, it's going to help them get into the power management business in a big way. We think their battery management system, uh, which is going to be quite important for the electrification going forward, uh, is a business that is doubling um, uh, in the near term. And we think these are the drivers of these businesses that are going to get them to have a growth algorithm that is going to be richly rewarded by the market, especially in an environment where people are quite puzzled by how to evaluate growth and what degree of profitability is going to be needed, X dog comp, X all the sort of other issues that people keep uh, now raising. Uh, and so we think analog devices is, a, is one of those stalwarts that's well, well positioned for the future. Yeah, it certainly held up a little better than the broader markets. Uh, Hari, thanks so much for being with us today. Hari, Ramon Anand. Software is doing pretty well today, but the worst stocks on the NDX in May? Yeah, a lot of software. Okta, Zscaler, Workday, Atlassian, four of the five worst performers, and all down 21 or more for the month. We'll get more on today's movers as we continue to lose ground here. S&P now well below 4,100. Back in two.
Let's get a gut check on the gaming sector today. We start off with the biggest loser, that's Unity, losing more than $5 billion in market cap and one of the top laggards on the NASDAQ 100 after reporting major inaccuracies with its new ad tracking tool. The company expects that the slip-up will cost it more than $100 million this year, but they hope to return to profits by the fourth quarter. Names that are making more of a splash in the short term, Square Enix, Sony, EA, the latter one of the biggest gainers in the NDX this month, in no small part thanks to those reports that it may be looking for a big-name buyer, maybe a Disney, an Apple, an Amazon. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. In the meantime, a lot more Tech Check is still ahead. Stay with us. Welcome back. Paramount, not the only company with a hit on its hands this week. Netflix's new season of Stranger Things smashed the company's opening weekend viewing record. It's a positive sign for the streamer whose stock is down more than 67 percent year to date. Julia Borston has that for us. Julia. Well, John, Netflix shares are lower this morning, but they did gain over 1% yesterday after the company reported that its Stranger Things season four set a record for the best premiere for an English language series with more than 40% more hours viewed than Money Heist season five and about 48% more hours than Bridgerton season two. This bodes well for subscriber engagement after the company warned that it expected to lose 2 million subscribers in the second quarter. KeyBank reiterating its sector weight rating on the stock this morning. Warning, quote, though, Stranger Things episodes were longer, which implies either less engagement or completions based on country rank and broader data, apps, search queries. We believe it is too early to conclude paid net ads could outperform our street estimates for the second quarter losses of two million subscribers. But here's why Netflix's blockbuster streaming numbers were particularly notable this past weekend. Those numbers were despite the success of Disney Plus's Obi-Wan Kenobi. That was the most watched Disney Plus original premiere. And that viewership also promoted a tripling of the viewing of other Star Wars titles this past weekend. It also shows that box office and streaming hits are not mutually exclusive. The streaming success of this weekend didn't seem to be hurt by audiences going out and buying tickets to watch Top Gun Maverick in movie theaters. Deirdre? That's a good point. There's just a lot of content to watch, still watch these days. Julia, thank you. Facebook parent Meta finally unfriending its old corporate name, announcing the stock will trade under the ticker META Meta when the market opens June 9th. More on Fang in just a moment. Stay with us. What's really happened here in the miserable months since the Fed decided it had to stamp out inflation? Simple. Amazon, Facebook, and Google have become colossal losers. And while they may stay losers, the bottom line is they've fallen so darn far that I think they've become metaphors for a whole host of stocks that are now ready to rally because they've got nowhere else to go but up. That's Kramer calling the bottom for three of the market's biggest stocks. Find out why at CNBC.com. Tech Check is back in just a minute. Well, one more thing. Tesla's remote work days, well, apparently over. CEO Elon Musk uh, seems to be sending out an email saying employees must work at least 
40 hours in office or they should leave Tesla. Did say be willing to consider some remote work exceptions. In a follow-up, he added that the more senior you are, the more you should be in office, highlighting, quote, that's why I lived in the factory so much. If I had not done that, Tesla would have long ago uh, gone bankrupt. Uh, while the emails remain unconfirmed officially, Musk did reply about the leaked email on Twitter, saying if employees aren't on board with the policy, they should, quote, pretend to work somewhere else. And Carl, I assume that means somewhere else other than Tesla and Twitter. Does this mean you can't work remote at Twitter? Maybe. I was going to say. Uh, Dia as some pointed out, no one's been more committed to remote work than Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, but he hasn't really been thrilled about that, right? His comment about making it a shelter was kind of tongue-in-cheek, saying if no one's going to work there, you might as well do something with it. Um, it goes back to Mary Daly's comments, though, right, about she's optimistic, no wage price spiral. So we'll see. He's on the other side. Yeah. Definitely made a splash. The judge is back. Let's get to the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.